If you have your Bibles, Philippians chapter 1 is where we're going to be now. Philippians chapter 1. In just a few seconds, I'm going to be reading from verse 8. This is the last sermon of 2012. It's always, if you're into that kind of stuff like I am, it's, it's good, it's, it's moving. We'll never get this chance again. <laughs> While you're turning there, page 830 in the church Bibles, I'm going to ask for you to extend me a lot of grace this morning as, and the reason is flat out this, and this is the totally honest reason, when I was working through this text this week, I found myself so utterly guilty. <laughs> and, and so when you're guilty of sin in this regard, as the sermon works itself out, you'll be able to call out my sin. <laughs> um, it was just hard to do, to be honest with you, and it was crippling. And so I found myself again and again having to stop, repent, pray, and then start all over again. So just remember that as the words are going out. Let's hear the word of the Lord now. Then verse 8, chapter 1, Philippians. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and be pure and blameless until the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's bow just for a brief prayer. Our God and Father, we would ask this morning that you would make this book live in us, that you would show us ourselves, that you would show us our Savior, and that you would make this book, Father, please, in this last Sunday of 2012, make this book live in us for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, I could think of only one or two things to take with us as we close out this year and enter into all spirit and Lord willing the next, then, which is uh, more essential than affirming the absolute necessity of prayer to God as Father in Jesus' name. That's prayer, right? Prayer to God as Father in Jesus' name. The habit of this kind of prayer is one of the clearest marks of a genuine Christian. As the Holy Spirit works in the Christian, the very first thank you, that is that we cry out to God, thank you, after we have been born into his kingdom. Luke 18, 1, they cry out to God day and night, and the Christian calls out to him in a certain way as Abba, Father, or Daddy, God, Romans 8, 15. And this work that God does by his Holy Spirit means that God has no quiet children. It's not possible. Therefore, just as it's natural for a baby to cry when they first come out of the womb, it's part of our new nature for the Christian. We just can't help but to cry out to our Father in heaven in prayer because we're now born again. Because if you're like me, you see your need for mercy. You see your need for grace. You, you feel your weakness. And at times, you feel emptiness. And we cannot do otherwise than that which we do. And so we must pray. The genuine Christian knows that they are dependent on God for everything, every day. They know, as they learn from the Lord's Prayer, that we are responsible in measure for others in our prayers. And we learn from the Bible, 1 Timothy 2, we are responsible for the very condition of this whole world in measure, in prayer. 
And the chief way that we express this dependence, that we express this responsibility, this accountability, is prayer to God in Jesus' name. Private prayer, public prayer, congregational prayer, prayer. All of these undeserved privileges is the pattern our Lord Jesus Christ won for us as the genuine Christian throws themselves into this absolute necessity. The habit of prayer to God as Father in Jesus' name is one of the clearest marks of a genuine Christian. And to guard us from turning prayer into some kind of prayer fetish, remind yourself if you need to, or learn this if you must, prayer to God in Jesus' name's name understands this. The, the privilege access which genuine Christians enjoy, this unrestricted free access to Almighty God, this is incredible, comes to us only by the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not our sincerity. It's not our tears. It's not some kind of spiritual ecstasy that we can work ourselves up to that gets us access to God. It is the blood of Jesus and Jesus alone that gets us access to God so that we would never come to God with such boldness as he tells us to do if Christ never went to Calvary's cross in total obedience. Listen to John Calvin on this. Since no man or woman is worthy to present himself to God and come into his sight, the heavenly Father himself, to free us at once from shame and fear, which might well have thrown our hearts into despair, has given us his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, to be our advocate and mediator with him, by whose guidance we may confidently come to him. Which means at least this, under God's sovereignty, God, only because of Christ, God now pours out in super abundant measure. You believe that, right? I believe that. God pours out in super abundant measure the benefits that Christ won at Calvary. Because Jesus Christ now, right now, is pleading for us. He's, he's the ultimate service, never stopping this, pleading for us before the throne of God. So because of this reality, because of this sure reality, it's the conviction of myself, it's the conviction of my colleagues and I on the elder board that as we here at West Cohasset Chapel become more and more a praying people, then more things will happen. That is our conviction. We had a good 2012. We are convinced that we'll have a better 2013 as more and more of us give ourselves to prayer in Jesus' name. More things will happen. If you received a worship folder, you probably noticed there was that thing in there. It was a long thing of the prayers of Paul. And on there is a suggestion, something that looked just like this for you. If you would please consider praying one of these prayers every day for all of 2013. There's about 20 prayers, so you can work through those time and time again. By May, you might have them down by memory, which is great. So you can impress your friends at lunch or dinner. But we know that prayer is very difficult work. J.C. Ryle from another generation said, there is no part of Christianity so neglected as private prayer. Bishop Hansworth said, prayer is often the last thing we learn. It's all very honest, isn't it? There's much to learn in prayer. We don't pray as often as we should. I know it's not very flattering, but it actually marks me. I have much to learn in prayer. Now, Philippi, the the letter that this was written to Philippi was the first major town in Europe to be evangelized by Paul as in a vision a dream he saw a man from Macedonia Acts 16 19 and the man was saying in Paul's vision come over and help us so this was a totally supernatural call 
So immediately Paul goes to Philippi and he begins to see the power of God in ways he had never seen before in the lives of men and women. So in the church, there was this wealthy businesswoman. Her name was Lydia from Thyatira. And in Acts 16, 14, we find that as Paul preached the gospel, God did what only God can do and he opened her blind eyes to Jesus. There was a slave girl who was freed from from a demonic spirit that gave her the ability to tell the future. And she was rescued from this curse because it is a curse to be able to tell the future like that. She was rescued from this curse by God's power and she was released from that torturous state. There was a jailer who discovered Paul and Silas still there in jail. They were thrown in jail because of the girl. And then an earthquake came, Acts 16, 26, and it shook the prison doors open and everyone's chains came loose. And on the spot, the the guard sees all this and he asked, what must I do to be saved? So he heard the praying and the singing. He felt the shaking. And then he was about to take his life. He thought everybody was escaping. Paul cries out to him, stop. Everybody's here. And the jailer kind of pieces all these things together and says that most wonderful question, Acts 16, 30, what must I do to be saved? Now you can imagine as Paul is writing this letter, he's thinking about these people in Europe and now in this letter, it's about 10 years later and he's in prison for chain, in chains because of the gospel, Philippians 1.13. And he's facing the real possibility of execution, which is why he says to live is Christ, to die is gain. He doesn't know what's gonna happen, happen, but this is what his situation is. He's chained, he's in prison, death seems his present circumstances, yet he writes this letter to this congregation, this church in Philippi, thinking about probably Lydia and the slave girl and the jailer, all probably part of the church in Philippi. And so he writes essentially with his heart wide open, Philippians 1.3, you can see if your Bibles are open, I thank my God every time I remember you. Every time I remember you, I thank my God and all my prayers for you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. Now, no wonder he has such happy memories. I mean, that, if you think about it, that's like a motley group of believers, right? You got a, a, a lady who used to tell the future, and then you got a businesswoman, and then you got a jailer who was ready to take his life. But he writes to the church and he tells them, verse 9, this is my prayer for you. And so what we're going to do is we're going to unpack that prayer under four headings. And the headings are this. And again, if you have a worship folder, you can turn to the back and there you'll see love's priority, love's character, love's fruit, love's goal. Priority, character, fruit, goal. First heading then, love's priority. Verse 9. This is my prayer for you, that your love may abound more and more. Now, Paul wants their love to increase. And remember, he doesn't say this from kind of like an attached mind or up from the mountain. Verse 8, God can testify how I long for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, some of you who are far, far away from home like me, you'll be able to relate to this. The word longing Paul uses in verse 8 has this idea of homesickness. I was thinking about that song, you know, I want to go home. I want to go home. Oh, okay, never mind. But anyway, he feels this homesickness in his gut. He has this longing for them. And so if you're like me, when family and friends come over to your place or you go to their place, as soon as you get there, you automatically think you're going to have to leave soon. And then it just kind of sets in. I mean, that's my curse. I'm sorry. I have to do that. Because you know you can't stay forever. Well, that is what Paul is doing. He writes and he tells them that I miss you guys. Martin Lloyd-Jones described this as a condition a gap in his soul. It was to him as a depressive illness that kind of just was set on Paul's heart because Paul has this deep 
longing for these people. And loved ones, when you're in partnership with the gospel, with God's people, I promise you that will do that. Nothing else will do that more than being in partnership for the gospel with God's people. And so Paul is homesick. He's depressed without him. And here is the issue. As far as the apostle Paul is concerned, here is the issue. Love is to be the central growth point for the Christian. Love is to be the central growth point for the Christian life. Listen to your Bibles, 1 Corinthians 13. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now, the origin of Christian love is not in us. The origin of Christian love doesn't begin or come out of us. And I mean, we can't work this up on our own because if you're wondering, how can I kind of cook this love up and you find yourself unable to do that, then good, you get an A on your grade sheet because every honest Christian knows that it's impossible by ourselves to create this kind of love in ourselves. Yeah, you know, you can fake it and run around like you love everybody and you're best friends with everybody, but in time that will start to smell like rotten cheese because the origin of Christian love is God himself. 1 John 4, 10, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for sins. Again, Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates, literally, God puts on show his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And one of the first things that God does for us when we become his true children is to give us the capacity to genuinely love other people, not with our love, but with his love. So the Bible says, again, Romans 5, 8, God has poured out this love by his Holy Spirit. That is why genuine Christians, by God's power, can, as a way of life, not just a one-shot deal, so you can say, I did it. No, not like that. We can, as a way of life, we can love the least and the last and the lowest. We can love our enemies. We can love the unfriendlies. We can love the undesirables. We can love the super rich, the super poor, all in between. We can love locally because you don't need to go away to pour out God's love to people. Do you realize that you and I as believers have the supernatural capacity to love others as Christ loved others when we accepted what happened at the cross? It's fantastic. Again, as soon as we became Christians, as soon as we accepted what happened at the cross, we were given the supernatural capacity to love others. So if you're Mr. or Mrs. Humpty Grumpy, you don't have to be. And you don't have to be a pretender either. Test yourself. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourself in this and see if you're in the faith. Galatians 5, 22, because the fruit of the Spirit, the byproduct of being filled with the Spirit is love. And again, what that means is this. The potential to love like Christ's love is present in the life of every Christian believer. The, the potential to love like Christ's love. Well, let's just think about that. What does that mean? Well, it's sacrificial. It is self-abnegating. It's self-denying. It's dripping with a willingness to pay a heavy cost in God's name for others with joy, with joy, as God has given this, given us all this potential. And so Paul is praying that the capacity for this agape, this 
God's love will increase in them. So, so this love is, is never to be thought of as, a, as in a fixed sta- uh, sense or a kind of a static sense. So you get it and you arrive. Now, if you're looking at verse 9, if you would just look at verse 9, you can't see it in the NIV, but in the Greek, the adverb still or eti is there. So verse 9 would read, your love even or still more and more abound. So Paul is not praying because they're not loving, but he knows, Paul knows that you can never love enough. So what he's asking for is super abundant love, even more than that which they already have. And so Paul prays that their love, verse 9, would abound. The Greek word has this, has this sense of wave upon wave, a cascading waterfall, so that everyone around you, if you would, just becomes wet in the love of Christ. Isn't that a nice thought, it being so cold outside? Now, we know that in the life of the church, we are tempted to overemphasize everything, but it seems impossible to me to overemphasize agape love, to overemphasize Christ-centered, servant-dripping, cross-caring, status-lowering love. No mere man or no mere woman can have enough of this, and this is how others will know that we belong to God. In fact, this is how we will know we belong to God. 1 John 5, I read it this morning, this is... Love for God, to obey his commands, and his commands are not burdensome to us. So God's love isn't the 1960s kind of love, you know, the Beatles kind of love, anything goes, everybody's always right kind of love. In our family, we call that ignorance, abuse, neglect, and hate. So that's not God's love. And God's love isn't exclusive love so that you love only a one or two or a few. You love the group. Those who think like we think, act like we act, and look like we like. And then we find it so easy to love them, and we do what the band The Seekers sang. We'll build a world of our own that no one else can share. All our sorrows will leave far behind us there. And I know I will find there'll be peace of mind when we live in a world of our own. So we say, just give me my group, those few people, because frankly, everybody else will just zap my way, my time, and my energy. Beloved Christian love is nothing like this. It is humbling. It is self-demoting. It is wide. It is deep. It's like a waterfall splashing and spraying everyone. It's like a can of Coke that my daughter gave me a couple of months ago that she shook up really good before she gave it to me. And then she gave it to me and I opened the thing and everybody got splashed with Coke. Romans 5, 5, God has poured. The idea is extravagant to the point where his love is just spilling all over the place. God has poured out his love for us by his Holy Spirit whom he has given us. So we can't do this on our own. We can't, but God's Spirit has been given to us to do this. And Paul says, I must pray. He knows he must pray for this. He prays that our love would abound more and more, ever-growing And beloved, we must too. So when a church receives an anonymous note like this, it's desperate. I came looking for Jesus and nobody spoke to me. I came looking for Jesus and nobody spoke to me. Now contrast that to what a non-Christian observer wrote in the year 125 AD when he looked at the Christian community and observed how they loved. Listen to what he wrote. They walk in all humility and kindness and falsehood is not found among them. And they love one another. If they see a stranger, they rejoice over him as, as, it, as if it were their own brother. And when one of the, their poor passes away from the world and any of them see him, then he provides for his burial according to his ability. 
And if they hear of any of their numbers is imprisoned or oppressed for the name of their Messiah, all of them provide for his needs. And if possible, that he may be delivered, they deliver him. And if there is among them a man that is poor and needy, and they do not have an abundance of necessities, they fast two or three days that they may supply the needy with their necessary food. No wonder they turned the world upside down for Jesus. For Christ's love was abounding in their heart. They outlived and they outloved and they outgave everybody. They took the ancient world by the hand and much of the time the ancient world had a sword in their hand. But they loved them still. Number one, love's priority. But please, please note that Paul is not talking about mere sentimentalism. That's too easy. He's not talking about that when he speaks of love. That takes us to our second point, love's character. Paul won't have a theology that, that, um, is not, that won't lead us to abounding love. So Paul won't have a Christian that is not theologically sound that doesn't have abounding love. There's your, again, verse nine, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. So Christian love is, is not blind. It's not mindless. It's not sentimentality. It involves a thoughtful, theological concern for God's truth and a careful application of that truth. And Paul is saying, our love will go wrong. Our love will go wrong unless we grow in knowledge and depth of insight. So as I grow in my understanding of the Bible, I'm actually loving you. As I grow in my knowledge of the Bible, I'm actually loving you. And for our love to grow, we need to grow in the knowledge of God's holiness And beyond this, we need to grow in the knowledge of our sin. We need to grow in that knowledge. Let me say that again. For our love to grow, we're going to have to grow in knowledge of God's holiness. And along with that, the knowledge of our sin. That's how we grow in knowledge. So why does our love grow as we comprehend our sin? Well, I think the reason is this. Because I begin to see the selfishness embedded in my nature that seeks to explain away or justify my own sinful behavior, which is so subtly self-seeking and so defensive and can hide from the public so well. This is a lost art. The, the art of the ability to be honest with ourselves, to be able to discriminate and flat out call out our mixed motives when they're there. To call out the real reason why we do what we do and we say what we say and expose the false reasons that might be just excuses for my selfishness or my laziness or my self-implated pride. You know, I only do X because I get a buzz when the people say, oh man, that is something, way to go, nice job. So here's the issue. Do we ever stop and ask ourselves, why is it that we do what we are doing? And when we do that, do we allow the Bible to be a mirror for our behavior, to let it expose our motives or expose our sin if it's there before a holy God and then deal with it? Because that is how love abounds. Now, if I were taking notes, I would write down this next statement. And here's the principle that I think Paul is giving us. A better knowledge of God, a better knowledge of our sin promotes abounding love. A better knowledge of God A better knowledge of our sin promotes abounding love. Now, you can't say that unless you can verify it. Well, here I am. I'm going to try to verify it. You ready? The Greek word for knowledge that Paul uses there is the word epigenosis. It's used 20 times in the whole of the New Testament. And every time it's used, it always is used to the knowledge of God. Things that refer to, if you would, theology. 
That's the knowledge of God. So the word has the idea of getting to the heart of the matter with theology, with doctrine, with God's word as the key. Now, you know and I know that all theology is connected to the cross of Jesus Christ. Remember that. All of theology is, crossed to, is connected excuse me, to the cross of Jesus Christ. So when we read a moment ago about the Christians in 125 A.D., that they were so liberal in their love. Remember, they walked in all humility and kindness and falsehood wasn't found among them and they loved one another and they despised not the poor. He that had distributes liberally to the he that did not have. Okay, so you ask your question, why did they walk this way? Why did they walk so humbly? Because they were thinking theologically, because they knew God. They knew the gospel. They knew that it was God's own free choice in mercy that he had chosen them before there was time and space and anything to be his children. And since they knew that the only thing that they brought to their conversion was their sin, they weren't walking around like they were stuck on themselves or they had this self-righteous bent, you know. Oh, I never thought I'd see the day. Oh, come on. Come on, be honest. That is a stench to God. But they were rather humble by God's free choice and responded the only way they knew how and poured out their very lives. Now, this is the doctrine that I just said in that statement. That's the doctrine of election, predestination, the doctrine of regeneration, the doctrine of God, of Jesus, of the grace of God, of justification and sanctification, and a few more, all in that little statement. See, that is what they were doing. They were thinking theologically. And they were careful not to lie because they knew lies were the native tongue of the evil one. And they were generous because they were able to think theologically, don't be angry here, and not conservatively. Think, Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how, he, how will he not also give us all things? And because they knew Christ said that where your treasure is, there your heart is, they set this basic tenet as the preeminent principle in all their decision making. You see, loved ones, that is God's knowledge. That is a growing epigenosis, a growing knowledge of God that pours out because of God. Now, what about the other part of verse 9, depth of insight? Well, depth of insight can be understood of, of how God's truth relates to life. This is what um, John Stott said was sense, a sense. It's knowing something, but then being able to apply it in our lives. So this is be able to grasp God's truth, the significance of God's truth, and make a Christ-honoring decision. Because no biblical truth is ever truly known until it passes out over into our lives in obedience. Right? So you have the Bible, and the question we have to ask ourselves is, is the Bible getting into our lives. We have the Bible, we know it, we study it, we understand it to a degree, but we'll never understand it as we should until we pass over and to obedience. Now listen carefully. Part of the problem of the church in Philippi is that the church was having a bit of trouble getting along with one another, which makes a prayer like this very crucial. And this is the issue. Everyone... Why can't they get along? Everyone had their own mind, their own will. They had their own doctrine. They had their own theological perspective. Everyone had their own. In 1947, Martin Lloyd-Jones said this as he looked at post-war Britain. He said, the popular view of man is the cult of self-expression, which is a view that says one has a right to express oneself even at the expense of others. And what one likes is thereby of necessity, legitimate. And the only way to get that to get to that is when the self is at the very center of the universe. 
Now, if you're tracking with me and you know a bit about this epistle, you can look at chapter two if your Bible is open there and you can see that the one who, was, who is at the very center of the universe, the Lord Jesus Christ, determined that he would not be at the very center of the universe. And so Paul gives this picture of the precious, beautiful, magnificent, humble servant, the risen Christ, who is the perfect example of God's knowledge and insight, and then he makes application into his life of that knowledge and depth of insight. So he starts off chapter two, verse four. Each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Verse five, let this mind be in you as it was in Christ, or let this attitude be in you as it was in Christ. So let's walk through that. Christ, who is God, made himself nothing. This is thinking theologically for the glory of God. He made himself nothing. He chose to become a slave for the Father. He humbled himself to death. So that his Father's plan, not his plan, this was the Father's plan. So the Father's plan could be performed. And sin-filled people like you and me could be saved. We could be saved. And loved ones, that is knowledge. That is epignosis. That is the depth of insight. That is theology. Theology that is super abounding in love. That is what thinking theologically means and not thinking selfishly. Because what you have in Jesus is essentially our example. He lowers himself. He lays aside himself to levels that we will never know for the good of others to accomplish God's will and God's kingdom expansion plan can be accomplished. Because because of this, When Jesus begins to think out his life, he's not living and deciding for himself. Jesus is thinking and deciding, if you would, again, theologically, thinking like his father would think. He's thinking about what his father would want, which takes us to our third heading, love's fruit. So you have all that, verse 10, so that you may be able to discern what is best and be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. So, so as Paul prays for the church, he's praying that as they abound in the priority of love, this love can abound without a growing knowledge of God. And if they're going to be honest, this love won't abound unless they have a growing knowledge of themselves and their sin. And if they don't have those two things, then their love essentially will be useless. And he asked God to give them a depth of insight so that they'll be able to move from the good to the better to the best. That's what Paul wants for them. He wants the very best. So again, we have to throw ourselves right to Jesus, right? Jesus is our example in everything. Jesus not living and deciding for himself. Jesus thinking and deciding, if you would again, theologically, he's thinking like his father. He's thinking for his father about everything. It's called the cross-shaped life, by the way. It's cross-shaped life. So let me just do this. Let me replace Jesus' name with my name. Joe, not living and deciding only for Joe, but Joe thinking and deciding theologically, thinking like his father in heaven for his father in heaven about every, everything. And loved ones, that is discernment, discernment. Not thinking for ourselves, but thinking for the father. Thinking for the father. So discernment, verse 10. The only worthwhile discernment that the Christian has is that that which we receive by the Spirit through God's word. That is discernment. discernment. Discernment is getting ourselves out of the way and asking the crucial question, how do things appear to God first? How do things appear to God first? That is biblical discernment. And that 
friends, is far greater than any tradition we might cherish or any line of thinking that we have clung to for years. So as Paul prays, he's surely saying, Lord, when it comes to the people's time, when it comes to their rights, when it comes to their choices, with their resources, let them discern what is best. You want to work through that? How do we discern what is best? So, so let's make some application. We ask the question, how much time do we spend with our children, parents, friends, work, or at home? For some of the, us, these things are idols. They suck up all our time. For others, there's, there's negligence there. So we need to ask God, God, help me to discern what is best here. What is the best? Personal relaxation. Some of us get too much. Some of us don't get enough. What's best here? Social networking. Lord, help me to know what is best when I post. Lord, help me to know when I'm making too much of myself or this is just taking too much of my time. Help me to discern what's best here. With friends, especially friends who don't know Christ, is there a credible witness there so that they, that they know that you enjoy them, that you want the best for them and you ask God, what is best here? How, how do I strengthen this relationship in letters and cards and emails and texts and phone calls, lunches with discernment? God, what is the best thing here? How about with money? Paul would have no doubt prayed, Lord, make the church know what it means to be your steward. What's best in terms of investing for eternity and what's best in meeting your own daily needs? What's the best here, Lord? Bible reading, prayer. Have we ever thought about this? Ask yourself, what is the best here? What's the best I can do here? In in my life as it's lived, what is the very best I can do here? Do you have a plan to pray this year? Do you have an excellent plan to pray this year? Ministry, what's best? Some of us have been ministering that we've never borne fruit and we're just in there because we want to save face. Well, keepers, creepers, get out. Think, ask God what is best. Retirement. Lord, what's best here? What do you want? Am I to be a tourist or an evangelist? Help me discern. And the really, really tough question here, because we want to discern the best is, what am I going to have to say no to this year? I mean, what am I going to have to say no, no to so I can discern what is best? because of prayer, because of ministry, because of family, whatever. How, how do I discern what's best? Because I can promise you that a prayer like this, prayed in sincerity, will change our very lives. Unless, of course, our lives are just perfect as they are. Because a prayer like this might mean that we will have to remove some of our routines that we have come to rely on, but is not the very best for the Father. I'm going to quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones again, Dr. Lloyd-Jones. He says, the whole art of life, I sometimes think, is the art of knowing what to leave out, what to ignore, what to put aside. Isn't that smart? The whole art of life, I sometimes think, the art of knowing what to leave out, what to ignore, and what to put aside. And And nowhere do we find this way of life more acutely than in the person of Lord Jesus Christ. I'll just give you one example. Mark chapter one. You don't have to turn to it. I'm just going to walk you through it. Mark chapter one, around verse 32, Jesus has been peeling people all day. He's the Lord of creation. He's the son of God. He can do those things. Nothing is too hard for him. All day into the evening, he, he, he's been healing people. Eventually, Jesus goes to bed. Not for long. Verse 35, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. And so while he was praying, no doubt he was asking his father for discernment for what's best. And in the midst of all the demands, in the midst of his prayer time, here comes Peter, Simon. He plunges in there and he says, hurry, hurry, Jesus, everyone's looking for you. They're looking for you. They've been looking and looking. Everyone wants you, Jesus. Everyone wants to see you. 
What's he saying? Well, there's more sick people to be healed. More people need to be freed from demonic power. They're waiting for you, Jesus. Come on, Jesus. Come on, let's go. Now, what does Jesus say? Verse 38, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach also there. That is why I've come. Now, you see this? He has to choose between two very good things, healing or preaching. No wonder he got up early and prayed for discernment. No wonder. And, and am I the only one? Because this is, this is what, this is the part that killed me in my sermon. Am I the only one that heart started burning when I heard this? That the Son of God felt it necessary to get up way early in the morning just to pray for a normal day in his life? God, what's the best thing here? God, not the good thing, not the acceptable thing, not the convenient thing. God, what is the best thing here? Love's priority, that, they, that their love would abound. Love's character, knowledge of God, knowledge of self, knowledge of our sin. Love's fruit to be able to discern what is best, verse 10, and be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. John Stott, his five keys to decision making. Pray, talk, think, wait, yield. Pray, talk, think, wait, yield. Finally then, Love's goal. Verse 11. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. And here, here's the goal. This is the goal. All this stuff is not just simply for us. Here's the goal. To the glory and the praise of God. So let's just wrap this up. Paul's great concern for the church in Philippi is that their love would abound more and more. That they would have spiritual discernment to spot out what is best. Why, Paul? Why do you, why do you want them to have that? Why do you want them to be able to live this Christ-centered life? Why? Just to do the best for best sake? No. Glory and honor would come to the Lord God. That is the conclusion. That's the conclusion of this prayer. All these good things zipped up together for the glory and the honor of the Lord God Almighty to the glory and praise of God. So as people connect themselves with the church at Philippi, they would say, there's something about them that draws me to God. There's something about them that makes me want to honor and praise God. Because what people think of God is at stake here. This is what is so important. What is at stake in this prayer and the answer in this prayer? What people think of God. That's the issue. God and his glory, which is the final est- and the final estimate is the issue about everything in our lives. God and his glory. What was the very first thing Jesus Christ taught his disciples to pray? The very first line of the Lord's Prayer. The honor of God's name in the world. The hallowing of God's name. That God would be honored, applauded, recognized by men and women. That's the first line of the prayer. And so as we close now, can you say that? Do, do we work to that end? Be honest. I mean, we all like a little taste of the glory. So then we're going to have to discern what is best. And that's the question. This is how we'll finish. Brothers and sisters, what is best? What is best here as we think out our lives? What is best? What is best for the glory of God? For the praise of God? How do we get to the best? So this morning, I was thinking through some hymns, and I thought, what would be the best hymn to end this sermon with? And so I think this might be, maybe not the best, but one of the best. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumph of His grace. My gracious Master and my God, assist me to proclaim. 
to spread throughout all the earth the honors of thy name. Lord Jesus, make this so in us today, we pray. Amen. Let's bow together. Our God and Father, we, we find ourselves guilty in these things. We repent now. We pray simply, Lord, what you have taught us to pray, that your love would abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that we'll be able to discern what is best in this year and be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to your glory and to your praise. Now may the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be our abiding portion both this morning and every morning until Jesus comes. Amen.